The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hi, I'm Winston Marshall and welcome to Marshall Matters, my new show with The Spectator. I'm a musician and I was a co-founding member of the band Mumford & Sons, which I quit in 2021. At the time, I tweeted about a book critical of far-left extremism in the United States. All hell broke loose. I decided better to leave my band and save my bandmates the trouble than stay and bring them under the bus with me. Or stay and self-censor. So now that I'm this side of the parapet, I thought I should use my voice to find out what are the totemic and difficult taboo topics that we can't talk about. I'll be interviewing artists, musicians, composers, comedians, everyone in the creative industries to find out what indeed is the state of the arts. And I hope you'll join me. Today, for the first episode, I'm joined live from New York City by conductor and pianist Ignat Solzhenitsyn. Ignat is the conductor laureate of the Chamber Orchestra of Philadelphia and the principal guest conductor of the Moscow Symphony Orchestra. He's also an expert on the work of Alexander Solzhenitsyn, his father. Uh, Ignat, welcome. Thank you so much for making the time. I'm genuinely thrilled. Uh, in anticipation of this interview, I've been listening to your performances of Brahms, Schubert, Beethoven and Prokofiev. Prokofiev was not someone I was familiar with before this because the classical world isn't a world I'm actually that familiar with. It's a world I'm hoping I might learn a little bit about today. Wonderful, Winston, and uh, so so pleased to be with you. And uh, conversely, I, I hope to learn more about uh, your part of the music world uh, that I'm not so familiar with. So wonderful to be with you and looking forward to, to chatting. Thank you. So I want to start off by quoting you, if I may. Uh, you said something in a previous interview that has really resonated with me. You said, we play, study and suffer for music for some bigger purpose. And it starts by expressing a wonderfully unselfish act, not just expressing me, but expressing another person. I think the context of this was that you were describing uh, your father as uh, believing an artist has a greater responsibility than just to express him or herself. And that that implies truth is not relative, that we can strive for it through art and that that is the tradition of Russian literature. Writing had a purpose larger than their life or ego. So jumping in there quite uh, heavy guns, but for me that sort of implies that, that art and music is a moral obligation. Is, do you feel that way? Uh, it's a, it must be classified as a uh, frightfully retrograde and, and uh, out of fashion uh, approach, I imagine. But to me, it's obviously true. It's obviously so. If we take art, and I suppose so much of it can, is semantics, so much of it is, well, what do you mean by that term? If we think of art as the highest, the most pure, the most truthful form of human expression, if we think of art as a bridge across which humans of very different, totally different backgrounds, persuasions, etc. Totally different people can understand each other better. Uh, if we think of art as 
a necessity for human existence in a way that does not exist, does not occur, I think is the correct term, in the natural world, per se, in the animal world. As much as we might love our dogs or cats or other pets, but we see, I think most of us recognize their existence is not devoid of the spiritual plane or of something more than just food, but it's, it's limited, obviously. Whereas for us, uh, this uh, notion that there is more to life than stuff, and there's more to life than property or property rights even, and there's something beyond that, and there's something we need in our lives, maybe not every one of us, maybe not at every stage of our lives, but at some point, most of us hunger for something more. Mm. And to me, more or less, those are some of the ways we can define art. And if art is defined that way, then yes, then absolutely. Something like that is, a, is, is an approach that, uh, uh, that I feel is, as I said, inevitable and obvious to me. Has it always been obvious to you? Presumably you started music at a very young age. And so being able to articulate what you think about the, the importance of art as you've just done, is that, 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 was that instinctual to you from an early age or, or is it something that you grew to appreciate as you got older? I'm sure it's evolved and, and deepened. Hmm. Uh, I'd like to think so. But certainly it was in the, in the water, as they say, in my childhood because I grew up, of course, in the family of a writer and in, uh, in a family where you, you mentioned the tradition of Russian literature. In my family, literature was so deeply valued, Russian literature included, but not only Russian literature, of course, all the, the great heritage of, of, of the past and present. So, and naturally that extends to, to theater and to painting, uh, I suppose, and certainly to my eventually chosen métier to music. Uh, so I would say how I feel about all this is, uh, more or less how I've always felt about it, except I'm sure when I was beginning my, my, my life's journey and beginning my journey as an artist, these th thoughts were perhaps not less cogently uh, expressed in my, own, in, in my own mind. Yeah. But I think the basics were, were there because, again, I think the basics are part, are part of a natural order, I think. Was there a moment for you where you felt when the decision to pursue music and the, the, the decision to pursue truth within this art form, did that happen? Do you, do you have a, a memory of that happening? Was there maybe a piece of music that so moved you that you felt that it was this was how you wanted to live your life, this is what you wanted to give your life to? Because as you said, there is a lot of suffering involved in, in creating and practicing and it's, 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 not, it's not easy, it's, it's really a huge labor. So to make that commitment is, is I think, a big thing for all musicians. Is, is, was there a moment for you or uh, how did that come about? It's hard to say that there was one moment. I won't say that. But there were, because the simplest way to answer that question is to say that as soon as I uh, learned what's what, and I mean that in the most rudimentary sense, in other words, it's kind of as soon as I learned to first learn to play the piano, of course, I wasn't thinking about conducting yet. 
I, I knew somehow my life would have to be in it or connected with it. Um, I, I just knew that. Now, there were, of course, great moments along the way of recognition, of illumination. Uh, the first time I heard a Beethoven symphony was, it, it so happens, in my father's study. And I had walked in, knocked on the door, and, and, and he said, come in. And I came in. He was working, as he usually was. But he would very often li be listening to music mm. on the radio or in some of his old vinyl records, which, of course, vinyl is now back in fashion, <laughs> uh, which is lovely. But uh, And I don't know which one it was, but it was one of the Beethoven symphonies. But I didn't even know it was Beethoven. I just stopped in my tracks and and listened and he listened and we just sort of both listened for some period of time and I then finally I, I asked this what is this who is this and uh, he said that's Beethoven and so that that was a that that and I wish I knew which symphony but of course it doesn't really matter because what matters that they're all nine of them are of course as great as anything ever written hmm. But the, the point is that it spoke to me so directly, so personally. Another moment I remember is um, another composer who would become extremely important in my life and has, has continued ever, ever since is uh, my compatriot Shostakovich. But I heard his Fifth Symphony, which is actually a very famous piece and probably his most famous symphony, but at uh, 11 years old, I hadn't heard his symphonies and I certainly hadn't heard the Fifth. And I was at a summer music camp where the orchestra, uh, not very well, but well enough to convey some sense of the genius and of the power and, as you say, the suffering in that music, played this piece. And, and it, it was just overwhelming. It was overwhelmingly powerful, overwhelmingly important to experience that kind of direct power, even more so, of course, live than um, as you and I know, than just on a, on a recording. So, so those are a couple of moments that come come to mind. But I think the 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 key the key point is that just uh, from early age, I just uh, and by the way, I didn't start playing that early, which can be two years old or three years old very commonly. But in my case, was I didn't start at all until six, and I didn't begin proper lessons till nine. So, but by pianist standards, that's on the late side. But on the other hand, very, very soon after that, I knew my life needed to be somehow closely connected or just in with music and in music. Wow. So an obsession then that's, that you've pursued through that time. There's, there, there's something that, that, that resonated for me because I remember when I started music, I, I never really philosophized about it. I just sort of did. I did it. I needed to do it. And then when I started trying to articulate it, for me, it was I needed to express my, uh, this is me expressing myself. But what you've got me thinking about really is this, it's actually, there's a, a moral, this moral obligation idea, this idea that actually it's, it's the pursuit of truth and we owe it to our neighbors, to our fellow man to pursue this art. Uh, it's just kind of thrown my, my week a little bit off because I, I never thought about it in that, in that way. And I found it very, it's been really challenging me in a very positive way, I think. Hopefully. Well, it's a wonderful thing, Winston, that, that what you're saying in, the, in your response. And of course, we, it's, it's very personal. And, and I'm sure each one of us can and should articulate his own way of thinking that. And so far be it for me to kind of impose that as a prescription 
on anybody, but just it's really a very personal interpretation mm. of what it means to be in, in, in our case, you and I, a musician, and 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 really, it's I, th I think it's just part and parcel of the broader idea. I think it's still universally accepted, rather universally accepted, at least in the Western world, that we are each of us part of a broader whole, whether of a broader group, whether it's our neighborhood, whether it's our city, our country, our common humanity. And as part of that community, uh, we each contribute what we can. Mm. We each contribute the, our best, one hopes. Mm. And we all have diverse talents and diverse areas in which we can bring something to contribute. And so if one senses that ability and that talent and that, as, as you say, need to articulate and express something something maybe greater than ourselves, then yes, I think there's a moral obligation to serve others. Mm. Partly, isn't it? I, I hope that's not too too grandiloquent to suggest it's it's about more than just me and my needs. It's about more than just me maximizing my uh, market value or whatever is the, uh, the the economic term for that. It's it's about con contributing something. Mm. And that does feel like a moral obligation, even if it's a, a small one and a small scale of one individual. One of the purposes of, of this uh, interview is, uh, and the various people I want to interview, is to look at freedom of expression within the creative industries. And I know very little about the classical world, but I have seen various articles over the last couple of years about how the classical world is coping in these sort of culture wars and, and uh, some uh, headlines suggesting Beethoven's too white and too male and being cancelled in some places and uh, racial quotas for uh, orchestras and uh, resignations over decolonization of the, of the Western canon, things like this. Now, are these real things? Have you come across these kind of phenomenon within Classical music are they something to be worried about, or may they are they perhaps overblown, exaggerated uh, ideas? Well, yes, they are a concern to me, and and to many colleagues, I, I think to most of my colleagues. But of course, I speak only for myself. It is true that headlines have a way of being just that, being outsized. And, and it's hard to tell the complete context. Mm. And I wouldn't say that these examples that you've brought up, which are all true, unfortunately, I wouldn't say that they're prevalent or dominant in the classical field yet. Uh, but broadly speaking, they concern me because of the utter misunderstanding, I think, of, of human nature that uh, stands behind them and of the potential for, for destruction that is inherent in them, yes. just speaking, speaking broadly. Mm -hmm. And I think that this is, uh, this is a big, big concern in, in the world of arts and really in the broader world in the broader Western world, at the moment, it's a big concern because uh, the very values 
that have made the West what it is, for better or worse, uh, are, it seems, not only under attack, but are, are being doubted hmm. uh, by sort of by the very cultures or countries or communities that have brought them forth. And I'm thinking in particular about values of tolerance and values of diversity of opinion and values of grace, listening to another's point of view, respecting another's point of view, making room for many points of view, and so forth. Uh, these are all under attack. And do you feel like with your contemporaries, are these at least conversations that can be had? Or, or is there a feeling that actually it's a dangerous conversation to be had? Winston, the, the, your question is uh, appropriate and very depressing because think about what you just asked, and I, I know you have. Uh, uh, is it a dangerous conversation to have? What point have we arrived at where, again, thinking of, and I just don't uh, feel qualified to speak about broadly the whole world mm. because there are many contexts and many cultures and many different histories, but I do feel quite confident speaking about uh, one of the worlds is, 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 this, is, the, is the traditional Western world and Western understanding of tolerance, particularly the one that comes from English common law and the one that has been promulgated and amplified and established in, in the United States with that very famous uh, and enduring constitution. And how can, there be, how can a conversation be dangerous? How can it be dangerous to exchange points of view? How can it be dangerous to have a disagreement? Mm. But it seems that we are heading precipitously uh, in, in that direction. Mm. And uh, yes, I think that people are afraid really to say exactly what they think. It's a different question that it may not always be civil to say everything one thinks. I think we learned that from our mothers or from our, from our fathers that you don't have to say everything that's on your mind. Yeah, that's called tact. <laughs> exactly. Question of tact, tact and question of good manners and a question of be, simply being kind. Sometimes it's kinder to be mindful of others. But broadly speaking, what, one ought to be able to speak freely and to, and to engage in discourse. And how else can one learn and maybe change one's mind um, other than through a free exchange of ideas? Uh, this, this is a great concern. But yes, I think people are frightened and uh, unwilling to speak freely because one never knows who's listening or who's reporting. You know, that's another aspect that I don't know how you feel about it and what your sense of it is, but even just the faint whiffs that I come across, and it's I think it's more than that, of the notion of telling on people, the notion of reporting. As mm. soon as a, an, a, a, a view that somehow... Uh, ranges outside an increasingly narrow orthodoxy is expressed, it must be, okay, it, not engaged with, not defeated, not exposed for the foolish or retrograde view that it surely is, but it must be reported. It must be reported so the appropriate authorities can deal with it. And this is, this is Stalinist. This is, this is awful. And surely that's not the way to foster understanding and community and really that, that, that kind of universal tolerant society that I think everyone is after, I think. But how we get there, 
the means matter a lot, don't they? Absolutely. I mean, in the pop world, my personal experience has been having sort of uh, been reported on or whatever, is that a lot of musicians, some of them very well known, have reached out privately and some of them are prepared to speak out in defense. But actually, my experience doesn't necessarily bode well for speaking out. And I, I sense within pop music a lot of people feeling like they can't speak. And actually, again, this is, this is why I value a conversation like this, is hopefully just by pushing the conversation, nudging it a little bit, it'll just make it easier and easier for us to speak and make mistakes. Maybe we'll get it wrong and have these conversations so that others can feel like they can speak uh, more freely. Uh, I wonder if that leads me to my next question, which is, well, the next thing I wanted to talk about is that in the West, I've noticed over the last few years that uh, your father's writings are cited more and more commonly. And perhaps, perhaps it's something I, uh, I just notice it more, but I, I, do, I do also sense that uh, as of the sorts of instance, often quoted uh, in articles I, I read, and um, he's quoted at length in the work of Dr. Jordan Peterson. He's, uh, there's a book called Live Not By Lives by Rod uh, Dreher, I think his name. And certainly in my life, I mean, I quoted your father in my resignation letter from his essay, Live Not By Lies. It seems that perhaps his work is, is resonating again precisely because of these things we've, we've been talking about, this, this sense of censorship and the way of the West at the moment. Do you have an insight into that? Do you think, am I, do you think I'm right in thinking that his work is being cited more at the moment? Yes, I do. And I think that uh, it has to, well, it, it has to do with maybe first, firstly, with the fact that there was a, a backlog of uh, translations of his works into English of all languages because of various essentially mundane and logistical issues. But there, recently in the last eight to 10 years, they are coming out, that backlog is being remedied and yeah. it, his books are coming out with increasing frequency for the first time in English, important Solzhenitsyn texts. And so that is eliciting a new new generation of readers, of commentators, even now of scholars who are specializing in Solzhenitsyn. And in short, there's a broader renaissance of engaging with Solzhenitsyn's art and his thought. Then the specific context that you mentioned, I think is, is absolutely evident because to the extent that Western societies are increasingly subject or tolerant of this notion of, for example, censorship, used to be, so to the extent that that's happening, yes, Solzhenitsyn's words and, and, and thoughts are gaining renewed application in contexts that, for which they were never intended. Hmm. except that as all great art, I think, they are universal. And so they are effortlessly applied uh, to, in this case, to the current cultural climate in the West. You mentioned Live Not By Lies, and of course you mentioned it so powerfully in your letter. This is a text I've known since very young age. It's a text that I virtually know by heart. Of course, it's not very long, four or five pages but it's a text I always associated with its time and place. 
What was maybe just 30 seconds about what is Live Not By Lies? Live Not By Lies was the final message of Solzhenitsyn, his final text that he wrote uh, before his forced exile to the West in February of 1974. So it was a kind of a, a kind of a last will and testament to the Russian people, uh, not that he was planning to die or, or expecting to die, and, but, but just he, he didn't know when he would return, if ever, of course. And he summed up his credo about how he had tried to live in those last, well, actually his whole life, but certainly those last so many years of his life in the Soviet Union, and how he didn't even maybe to say implore others to live, but how he, a, a way that he showed that could be possible. And this way, as you well know, Winston is saying, you don't have to be a hero. You don't have to stand up in the public square and condemn injustice because it's too much to ask. You have a family, you have children, you have a job. You're not courageous by nature. You're not a superhero. You're just a guy or a girl, a woman. You're just a person. And Okay, so you don't have to be a hero, but what you perhaps ought to consider is do not participate in the lie that is all around you in, in Soviet communist totalitarian society. It's all around you. It's at your workplace. It's in your home. It's on the streets. And just don't participate. And he gives examples of how, if, of how one could do that. Small steps a normal person, a simple person can take that then if more people did that could have a cascading effect. So that was a suggestion meant for those times, meant for that place, for that country that was enslaved by an evil, anti-human, despotic regime. To think that that advice now can be so relevant to a free people free society in the West is, uh, until very recently, unimaginable. But you're absolutely right. It seems to have direct connection to choices that people can do or do not make in, 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 uh, in the West today. It's funny for you to describe it as a sort of gentle text, because for me, actually, uh, and I've read it a lot this year, uh, particularly before, resigning from my band or quitting for the band. And actually, I just wanted to, if I may, read one particular paragraph, which I read over and over this year. And I didn't take it at all as a light, like, it, I took it as a, like, a very, um, a, a command even, something I felt, it, it, it resonated, it, it hit me so deep that, I, that I, there was nothing gentle about how I interpreted it, let's put it that way. And he who is not sufficiently courageous to defend his soul, don't let him be proud of his progressive views and don't let him boast that he is an academician or a people's artist, a distinguished figure or a general. Let him say to himself, I am a part of the herd and a coward. It is all the same to me as long as I am fed and kept warm. I, that's not a gentle piece of writing. That, that's tough. That's like, that's a, a brutal almost, uh, it's ruthless, I would say, even. Have I mis misinterpreted its intention? I don't know if I, I see it the same way or read it the same or hear it the same way as you do. I know I understand what you're saying. 
mm-hmm. course, and it, it, it's it's strong. But I, I think, I don't know if I use the word gentle, and if I did, maybe that wasn't the right word. But what I mean to say is that this appeal is meant to be, and I think it is if one reads the whole text, as of course, of course as you have, is voluntary. This is, I think it's important to know and, and, and to understand that he is not, this is not like it or not, you have to do this. Or if you don't do this, you're consigned to eternal perdition. Mm. Uh, it's, he's saying this will only work if individual persons will stand up. And he says it towards the end, if you remember, he says, it shouldn't be so, fr-. Winston, this, 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 this echoes something you said a few minutes ago. He said, maybe through our conversation, you said, maybe somebody else will be emboldened to just, uh, as you say, to nudge the conversation a little bit, to be a little more tolerant, to be a little more broad. And Solzhenitsyn says in Live Not By Lies, there are already persons today, and he says, even dozens of them. So there aren't many, but maybe, <laughs> maybe, maybe some dozens. So... <laughs> but who are living this way, who are living not by lies. And he says, so it shouldn't be that hard for you, dear reader, to consider joining them. It shouldn't be that hard. You know, you could do it starting today. You don't have to wait. Somebody's already doing it, and they're not being shot or killed, as admittedly in uh, earlier, even happier times of the socialist paradise under Lenin and under Stalin. Okay, now this is 1970s the period of stagnation, uh, you may lose your job. You may go hungry, but you won't be shot, you won't be killed simply for refusing to participate in a lie, at least in most cases. And he, and he says, and he makes that distinction between violence and lies, and how intertwined they are, but also how most people, even in the Soviet Union of the 70s, won't encounter violence directly. They will encounter, some of them will encounter violence some of the time but all of them will, will encounter or participate in lies all the time. So that's the only distinction in angle that I would say is, is that the words are strong, but yeah, he, he's, he just says, if you don't do it, at least be honest with yourself what that makes you. Yeah. It makes you a coward. It makes you, yeah, so those are strong words, but I think he knows that, I'm sure he knows, knew that uh, his appeal only can only work to the extent that it's voluntary, to the extent that people want to rise uh, from all fours and to stand up on two feet as a human being should. Yeah, that, that's uh, just, I'm sure that that, that piece of, of writing will be read for centuries to come. And actually, I discovered it myself quite late uh, of, of the, the bulk of Solzhenitsyn's uh, work. And, and yeah, it's it's easily the most profound, and that's saying a lot of what I've read. So I'd love to ask you as a last question, what are you excited about? What, what is on the horizon? And what, when can we hear you uh, next performing? It, it's, uh, it's been a long pause, hasn't it, for, for many of us? And uh, what a strange, strange, strange time. But one hopes that it seems to be finally life in general, in most places coming, trending more or less in the right direction. And certainly one feels that in music and in the music world. And yeah, I'm excited to be coming back to concerts. And and as a matter of fact, coming to London very soon, 
and uh, would, would love, love to see you there uh, performing at Wigmore, uh, Wigmore Hall uh, in London in February. So God willing and uh, COVID regulations willing, you know, that, that will happen and uh, performing a, a program of late Shostakovich, speaking of, at Wigmore and... Uh, Shostakovich is the Soviet is cellist. Is, am I right? Is the great? Have I got that right? No, that's Rostropovich. Oh, sorry. Yeah, a, a lot of the sort of similar or rhyming names certainly in Russian. But uh, so Rostropovich, Mstislav Rostropovich is the great cellist and conductor. Okay. Uh, Dmitri Shostakovich is one of the great Russian composers. Also was a terrific pianist, but that's essentially a footnote now uh, because of this, his tremendous stature as a composer, uh, 1906 to 1975. Uh, and so he would, the revolution came when he was 11. And so really he lived his whole adult life under the Soviet regime and died uh, under the Soviet regime. And his, his work is some of the most searing and probing and powerful testament to human suffering and to the, to the depths of human self-examination, how deeply we can probe ourselves until we hit not just raw, you know, meat, I guess, but hit bone or hit whatever hides behind the bone, the, the essence of humanity. I think Shostakovich does that in a, not only in a moving, but really in a frightening and deeply thought-provoking way and emotion-provoking way. And uh, I guess those are some of the reasons that for me, he is so, so important. And so, and bringing two works that, that were written in the last year of his life, 1974, 75, to the Wigmore stage. Wonderful. Well, I very much look forward to it. Uh, as you say, God willing, it'll happen. And God willing, the music will be back. Thank you so much for your time. Really special for me. Ignat, thank you so much. I really, really appreciate it. And um, Winston, yeah. you, you, uh, you are welcome. And thank you for asking me to join you. And I'm sure you've heard it a lot, but I think it has to be said, thank you for what you've done. And I think that what you've done is precisely, I think, the sort of thing that my father was talking about, which is to value something ineffable above material things. And uh, uh, in your case, as you've said, I think it would, would have been much easier to just 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 go along, continue with the with your amazing success and with your fame and, and, and everything that goes with it. And sure, that would be the easiest. Protect your investment, protect your it's a, but you did something simple and yet incredibly brave, simply by really, as I see it, defending your right and therefore each of us, the right of each of us to speak freely. And so for this, I thank you very much. And I know that many of our colleagues do, whether publicly or more likely privately. And uh, bravo. Ignat Solzhenitsyn, thank you so much. Mm -hmm.